This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. Okay, so when I started this show, I had a list of people who were like my dream guests, and this person was on that list. So since I'm freaking out right now, I need you all at home to just be cool. Don't freak out. We're going to get through this together. We have the highly decorated Princeton University economist, legend on economics Twitter and on Jewish Twitter, the one, the only Leah Bustan, and we're going to talk about the perils and great potential of the age of data. So for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the book of Numbers, which is, of course, the most boring name possible for one of the all-time super exciting books in the history of literature, let alone the Bible. But it is true that the book of Numbers does talk a lot about, well, numbers. It records a census of the Israelites, figuring out how many priests there are, and so on. Now, when it comes to counting people, the Bible seems to be of two opposing minds. So on the one hand, God himself insists on counting the Israelites all the time in the Bible. It seems clearly to be a good thing. It's an act of divine love. And yet in other cases, the Bible portrays census taking as extremely dangerous, right? So in the book of Exodus, God tells Moses that taking the census, if it's done incorrectly, could lead to a plague. In the book of Samuel, this actually happens when King David counts the Israelites. So is the census good or bad? Is it laudable or dangerous? And I think the answer is it depends. So, you know, Peter Thiel has this great observation that the Bible begins with a garden and ends with a city. So on either end of the human experience, you have an ideal. One is urban, the perfect holy city, and one in which the benefits of thousands upon thousands of years of human advancement culminate in the world as it ought to be. And this is the world we're building towards. And it's one that's only made possible by collective human endeavor, right? By the things that we can accomplish when we come together en masse. And the significance of the census of counting people and building towards this ideal is that it reminds us of the advantages of size and scale. More people, more ability to coordinate them can mean more opportunity to improve the human experience. And that's a wonderful, laudable thing. But the other ideal is not a city, but a garden, the Garden of Eden. And it's there in that primordial moment at the very beginning of Genesis that the Bible enunciates one of its most radical revolutionary teachings, that every single human being is created in the divine image and is therefore of equal, infinite, unquantifiable worth before God. And when you look at each person as a bearer of that divine image, it becomes absurd, maybe even immoral, to think that we can reduce any person to a data point. And so is there a biblical perspective on census taking, on studying humans from a statistical perspective? And I think the answer is yes. For the Bible... It's important to be able to count every person, but only if we remember that every person counts. And in an age where data is so plentiful and our techniques for exploiting it have become completely unprecedented in human history, and we can learn so much from studying it and approaching it creatively, this lesson is more important than ever. So to unpack all of this, to help us think virtuously about the new world that we're in, I invited on literally one of the world experts in using census data and other large data sets to answer historical questions of incredible moral importance. And someone whose approach to her work, at least on my reading of it, is deeply shaped by tradition and faith. And she's a professor of economics at Princeton University, one of the bright lights of econ Twitter, and also a voracious student of the Talmud who has been studying and live tweeting a page of Talmud every single day, a practice called Daf Yomi, for about a year and a half now almost. And she's the incredible Leah Bustan. Leah, thank you so much for being here. Ari, thank you so much. That was a fascinating introduction. 
And the only thing I would take objection to is the idea that the book of numbers sounds boring. That sounds <laughs> right. fascinating to me. Oh my God, shots fired like immediately. As it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, I forgot who I'm speaking to. <laughs> so academia is a field that at least in the popular imagination, kind of like codes non-religious and has this popular reputation of being a place that's kind of inhospitable to traditional religion. But historically speaking, universities were nearly always bastions of like great religious thought. And even scholars working in non-theological fields were nourished by their faith. And I kind of see you actually in this tradition. So while you're doing some of the most methodologically innovative cutting edge work in economics today, which I want to talk about in a bit, you're also, right, at least, at least on my reading, like pretty old school in the sense that you're really proud of your faith and you bring those values like really straightforwardly and unselfconsciously into your work. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to this? What's your journey been like and what's it like bringing your faith into academia and vice versa? Well, I think that having Twitter as a place for conversation has really helped in that regard because you're right that many academics are not that religious or don't see their religious faith as an important part of their identity. So there is strength in numbers. When we have Twitter, we can find each other. And I have been able to find good friends and dialogue partners who are committed Christians, who are part of the LDS church, uh, who are Muslim, and also who are Jewish in the field of economics that I think I would not have known before because we don't really wear our faith identities on our sleeve. So if I had met those folks at a conference, we probably wouldn't have talked about it. I had a really interesting experience starting Daf Yomi, actually. It began on the last day of the American Economic Association conference around a year and a half ago. This was the last conference that I went to in person. And since then, everything's been on Zoom, of course. And I was flying back from the conference with a colleague of mine and looking at my phone while we were in line to get on the plane. And he's like, what you looking at? I said, oh, the Talmud, you know, I'm going to be <laughs> committed to this for the next seven and a half years. 1.8 million words, no big deal. <laughs> I told him about what we were learning that day. He's also a Jewish economist, not terribly interested in you know his Jewish identity or faith, but he said, that sounds interesting. Let me download the Safari app while we're waiting in line. I'll take a look at it too. A year and a half later, and he's still doing Dafyomi. That's amazing. That's an incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that if you put yourself out there a little bit, um, then you'll find that there are other people who are, you know, there waiting to meet you, but also, you know, might be inspiring to other folks to take a little step in that direction as well. So I actually remember when you started doing Dafiomi because I, creepily enough, I'm like a huge fan of yours from way before that. I'm like the kid who got into Nirvana before like Kurt Cobain became a thing. So like I just read your economics papers, right? And then all of a sudden you became like Leia's Dafiomi page. And I remember actually one of the first things that you tweeted about, or maybe it was like sort of a year on when you like tweeted some reflections about it. You said something like in the beginning, everybody was making all these jokes and I made them too. Like, oh, everybody starts Dafiomi at the very beginning of Dafiomi when it's, you know, everyone's in the first tractate and it's pretty light reading. You're not yet into like deep agricultural stuff or like uh, all the mathematics of how to construct a set of strings around the city, right? And everyone made those jokes about how, oh, like it's so easy now. And one of the things that you found is that you've been able to keep up with it, even through some of the most difficult tractates in the Talmud. So a year and a half in now, how would you make the case to someone who's never studied Dafyomi before about why they should do something like this? Well, what worked for me is studying in Chavruta. 
I don't think I would still right, be doing with a study it. partner. Having a study partner. And I remember one of the first things we learned at the beginning, you're in Tractate Brachot, and you learn that when you study alone, then the divine presence is with you. But when you study together with another person, then your words are written down in the book of remembrance. And that has proved to be absolutely true. You feel like when you read it yourself, okay, yeah, I got it. I'm with it. The next day you go back to remember what it is that you were reading. And it just is such a flow of of new information and new concepts that it's hard to recall. So I'm studying together with another economist once a week not the colleague I mentioned at the beginning. So there's more than just uh, there's more than just a few of us. Discovering Dafyomi Econ Twitter has blown my mind. <laughs> <laughs> because some of the things that we find the most interesting, other people, you know, that's the part they find more exactly. boring. So it's nice, it's nice to have all perspectives included. But we've been studying together once a week. And I think it's what economists call a commitment device. Um, and, you know, that concept isn't so hard, for, I think, for non-economists to latch onto as well. Just knowing that I have an appointment coming with someone is what's keeping me honest to continue doing it. So I wouldn't presume to tell anyone you should do it or you shouldn't do it. But if you want to do it, I think setting up the systems at the beginning to make sure that it's going to happen, um, having a study partner, the Twitter account was kind of a commitment device for myself as well. I need to have one thing to share with the world each week. And so that keeps me going back to it. I have to admit, though, that I started Dafyomi on a complete lark. I opened up the newspaper on, I believe it was January 1st. It may have been December 31st. And I saw the image of everyone gathering for the big seum for the ending of reading the Shas for the last cycle. And they were gathering in a, in a big football stadium. And it was just awe-inspiring to see so many people together who've all been studying on this journey. And I said, that's where I want to be in seven and a half years. Amazing. I did not know what Dafyomi was before I opened up the <laughs> on that day. Well, that explains it. <laughs> it was kind of a lark. And then I reached out to, on Twitter to say, hey, does anybody want to do this with me? And that's where I found my study partner. And we've just been going from there. And it's really like, I'm just telling all the people out there, like it's must read tweeting. All the stuff you're tweeting out is really awesome. And I actually, I remember we had Tommy Collison on the pod and one of the things that he talked about was how, you know, he's been studying, speaking of commitment devices, like he's been studying the great books, um, you know, re and reading Virgil and the Aeneid and then, you know, and getting to Dante and so on. And he writes really explicitly about and publicly about this, about how it was inspired by the Dafyomi. And I think it's just a good pedagogical model. So I actually want to talk about your work specifically. So a lot of your work, even before we get to some of the details of it, it's about, as I understand it is about really creatively exploiting large data sets to learn new and innovative things. Now, when I think about the history, as we talked about a little earlier, when I think about the history of thinking about human beings in mass terms, so I associated a lot more with like empire or maybe just entities with strong state capacity and Jewishness or the Jewish people haven't been that at least for a few thousand years, even if we once were. And so I think Jewish tradition is maybe for that reason, like a lot more individual focus. So a lot of the Talmud, for example, is about interactions between individuals, plaintiff and defendant, Israelite and priest, parent and child, etc. So what's it like to come from that tradition as you do and then go out into the world of dealing with humanity in mass? Well, I guess I've always wondered when I read a story, how representative is it and how did this story come to survive? You know, so why do we hear about the rabbis and not some of the other Jewish communities or groups that were living at the same time. 
And, you know, if you're really successful at getting the word out or writing your story, then your story might survive. And so I was always interested in putting the individual in the context of the, the larger group to see where that, that person falls. So I don't know if that comes out of some kind of, you know, Jewish tradition, but I guess it comes out of a skepticism. You know, when you, when you hear um, one tale, that story is true in and of itself, perhaps, but how many people does that really speak for? So that's so interesting. And I actually, that segues perfectly into your work on immigration. So first of all, you you have done some really pathbreaking work on immigration and sort of success rates for children of immigrants. So first of all, can you give us like a little bit of background on, on what that work is? Yeah, I've been working for a long time. I don't even want to say how long, maybe 15 years <laughs> um, with Ron Abramitsky at Stanford. And we have been trying to follow individual immigrants and immigrant families over time once they arrive in the U.S., but even back to their childhood households in Europe, if possible. And then with each generation in the U.S. to see how do immigrants fit into U.S. society, how do they climb the ladder economically, and then what happens to their kids. And so the idea is like, imagine going to study your own grandfather, grandmother, and see where they were living. You know, were they living in the Lower East Side in a, a tight-knit Jewish community? Were they living on a farm in rural Minnesota? But then do that millions of times over. And, and in that way, try to get a sense of the, the representative or the typical immigrant. And so one of the things that you found, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things that you found is that there's actually this really persistent trend across immigrant groups from different countries, from different points of origin and, and different time periods. There really just seems to be this really persistent trend that immigrants and children of immigrants just tend to be more successful than than native born folks. Is that is that correct? That's right. I mean, we started with the historical evidence because We've been talking about big data and census data. We've had a, a U.S. census every 10 years uh, going back to 1790, but that data is kept private for 72 years after the census was taken. When you fill out your census form, you write down your name and your address, and that's information that you, know, you might want to keep private while the person is alive. So we have a 72-year rule here that after that time, all the information is released to the public which means that next year we're going to get the 1950 census for the first time, which is very exciting, marking my calendar. Party um, time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, up until now, we have through the 1940 census. So we can follow you know, sort of this age of mass migration from Europe immigrants. You know, immigrants that started out first from the UK and Ireland, from Germany, and then going um, sort of outward uh, to Southern and Eastern Europe. And we can follow them and their children through 1940. So that's a pretty complete picture. But we don't have such information for the modern period. Uh, but we really did, like you're saying, want to see how much what we were learning about the past was also bearing out in today with immigrant groups that are coming from all over the world, from Latin America, from Asia, from the Middle East and Africa. And so in that case, we're using another source of big data but not one that we can really get our hands on because it's very proprietary. So this is data that we collect with our tax system. Every time we pay taxes, we write down our own social security number and the social security number of our dependents. So those are our kids, usually. 
So in that case, imagine you follow your own kids forward 30 years. Hopefully they're in the labor market and they're paying taxes themselves. So that way we can trace a person back to their childhood household through the tax system. And this is data that people at the Opportunity Insights Group that's centered at Harvard have put together and it's very under lock and key. So we do not have the individual families there. We can't really follow a grandparent in that sense, but we do have some aggregates that they've provided to us. So now you have these two big data sets, one from the past, one from the present, which really allows us to compare. And I don't know, I mean, I would just pause and ask people listening you know, what you would expect, you know, before I tell you what we find, you know, what, right. like, what do you think the path would be for, you know, compare an immigrant from Italy or Poland in the past to an immigrant from Mexico or China today? And I think that there's a, a sense out there that immigrants are a little bit slower these days to be able to move up the right. ladder. And you can see that playing out in people's like stereotypes and so on. Yeah, I mean, it might be because they come from poorer countries because they right. haven't had the opportunity to have education. It might be because they face discrimination. You know, so it's not that it's necessarily, you know, a hypothesis that comes out of a feeling of immigrants being inferior. But there's a sense, I think, going on uh, these days that might be true. So our mind was really blown when we saw how similar past and present was. We were surprised to see that the children of immigrants in the past and the present are moving up more rapidly than the children of the U.S. born to a very similar degree then and now, and also true across almost every sending country in the world. So we really see this as, you know, one kind of common or consistent story rather than an idea of some nostalgic past where immigrants made it. And then, you know, some like a sense of concern for today. Like a fall from Eden, right? Right. So here's why I'm so enthralled by this. Recently, Balaji Srinivasan, who's, uh, I think he's the either current or former CTO of Coinbase. He's sort of a very insightful guy on Twitter. He had this great article where he compares founders and inheritors. And he talks about how, you know, so much of what we know is that founders, a person who's a founder just tends to be a much more dynamic person than someone who inherits a lot of stuff. And I kind of see that as a parallel to what you're talking about, which is, you know, immigrants, someone who immigrates to a country in many ways is a founder of a personal story, but is a founder. And when I read Balaji's piece on Medium about this, and as I was reading through a, a lot of your work, it kind of struck me as the one way to think about the challenge that a society has is if it's true, and I think like once you think about immigrants as founders, it almost becomes intuitive that immigrants are someone with that mindset they just are almost always going to just be more successful, at least in the aggregate. So then the real challenge for public policy or for society building, even in sort of like a moral sense, is how do you constantly create and recreate an immigrant society? How do you like keep your society over long periods of time as an immigrant society? And it struck me that a lot of the stuff that I've been thinking about lately in terms of biblical thought actually points in that direction, right? So one of the things that I kind of went back and forth with Balaji about was how in biblical stories, like you see this. So for example, the two major biblical founders in an American sense, right, Abraham and Moses. So famously from a biblical scholarship perspective, their respective successors, 
Isaac and Joshua relive the stories of their of their predecessors, right? It's not bad story. Like I, everything that Abraham does, Isaac then does again. Everything that Moses does, Joshua then does again, right? In Joshua's case, he's crossing a sea. The sea is splitting, right? He's leading tribes through a desert, right? So I think the reason is because like you're constantly trying to preserve this sense that, yes, the next generation is a founder also. And another way that this works out is through covenant-type societies, right? So we think of America, and in many ways it is sort of like a social contract-built society, right, where we all have rights and we all make certain demands upon our government and the government makes certain demands upon our time and, and liberty, and we sort of agree to coexist and leave each other alone as much as possible. Once you have a contract in place, society just runs on that, right? But what a covenant does is it seeks to constantly recreate and reinvent society. So you're constantly renewing the covenant and you're constantly positioning yourself as the first generation of a new experiment. And I wonder if sort of that biblical model, right, where after the Moses generation, like Joshua has to renew the covenant and now Jewish history almost starts again from year zero. King David has to renew the covenant, and and Jewish history kind of starts from year zero after the reign of King Saul. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah in the book of Kings, has to restart biblical society, and everything starts again from year zero, as it were. Same thing with King Josiah a few generations later. So I often think of the covenantal model as something that I wish was much more present in American society. But as you're thinking, as someone who's, who's really done a ton of work on dynamism in American society, have you thought about how can we make our society, how can we sort of bring that immigrant energy into the native population, whether it's through covenant or something else? Have you thought about this at all? Yeah, we have actually. We tried to understand some of the mechanisms by which the children of immigrants were succeeding. So why are they doing better? And I think there's this impression that there is a set of immigrant values, like immigrants are harder working or they care more about education. They do whatever it takes to help their kids succeed and that that might die off in the inheritor generation, you know, as you would put it. And what we found was that there was something that showed up in the data as an immigrant value that was incredibly helpful for kids' success. But it wasn't this sort of intangible about immigrants caring more or trying harder. It was actually encoded in their geography. Immigrants locate in the areas in the United States where there is more opportunity for upward mobility Mm, for everyone that lives there. So what we found is that overall, children of immigrants are succeeding more than children of the U.S. born. But if we narrow the geographic comparison, so we're getting to the point where you think, okay, now here's two families that are living next door to each other. One has immigrant parents, one has U.S. born parents. Are the children doing better in the immigrant household? The answer is no. So a lot of what's going on is that immigrants are choosing the locations that encode more dynamism and that helps them and their kids succeed. What that means is there's no special sauce. You know, that's something that a U.S. born person could do as well. So we did try to look into that a little bit because, of course, as someone who's U.S. born, you are endowed with a birth location, but you can always move. So we looked at families where the parents had moved across state lines versus parents who were still living in their state of birth. And we found that for the internal movers, they actually looked sort of halfway between Uh, children of immigrants and children of U.S. born. So it has something to do with the fact that immigrant means that you moved from somewhere. You've already made this choice to kind of break family ties and move to the United States to seek opportunity. So once you're there, once you're in this new location, 
you now have a choice of where in the United States to live. And it turns out immigrants are choosing the locations that provide more opportunity for everyone. And thinking about some of our founding figures, thinking about Abraham, thinking about Moses. I was just going to say journeys. They're on journeys. Exactly. Um, Abraham has to break family ties and has to move from one land to another. And Moses, too, has to break, you know, ties with his adoptive family. And he has to move in order to really self-actualize and become, you know, the leader that he is. Wow. I wonder if that gets reinforced in in some way by like by like cultures that have pilgrimage as a part of their tradition, right? So like, you know, if I'm thinking about rabbinic culture, so, you know, in the days sort of at the end of the Talmudic period and the beginning of the subsequent period, so people are traveling long distances on a regular basis to study, right? Um, in Muslim tradition, obviously, the Hajj is a major pillar of the faith, right? So, and in Christian tradition as well, you have people traveling to the Holy Land and 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 so on and so forth. So I wonder if that willingness to travel, I wonder if it's something that maybe even coincides with religion. Because one of the things that's so interesting about, about immigrant populations to the U.S., I could be wrong about this, but at least as I kind of like observe it today, is that at least from a surface reading, like they seem to me more likely to be religious, right? Like it could just be because the current wave of, of immigrants that I have in mind are from South America and South America just happens to be like a wonderfully religious place. But you know, I wonder if sort of willingness to take a journey and faith just kind of pair together quite naturally. Well, I think you also need a, a community to help you when you arrive. And religion mm, is a really important too. glue for that to happen. So thinking of a Chinese graduate student that I had here recently who said when he moved to the U.S. for college, his aunts were already living here. And they said, oh, welcome. Come to church. Wow. And he's like, wait a second, but we're not Christian. You know, why am I coming to church? Because at home, their family had not been Christian. And his aunt said, well, you know, here, the church is such a wonderful place for welcoming new Chinese immigrants. And so, you know, we weren't Christian, but we're Christian now (laughs) and come to church. I think that you know, historically, religion has been an important glue for for immigrant communities, so much so that actually a new project of ours that, you know, is not at all ready for prime time. We don't have um, any breaking news yet, on good faith effort. Been, um, <laughs> breaking news. Yeah, we have been collecting data on all of the uh, Catholic churches in four major uh, U.S. cities and geocoding them so that you put them on the Google Maps of the past, right? So we know exactly where they're located and when they were constructed. And so we can see the neighborhoods that were there beforehand and the families that were already in the neighborhood and then watch how their behavior changes when the church is in place. What's interesting about these churches is that they're all connected to particular ethnicities. So they were designated in the data that the Catholic diocese would put out. This is the Italian church. This is the Polish church. And you see that the priests, you know, have names that would suggest that they're from those original countries. And the homily was, you know, given in in the vernacular as well. So the language of the service would be somewhat in the vernacular. And so we're going to be learning more about exactly how these religious institutions worked to help support immigrant communities once they arrive. That's amazing. So to shift topics, although I think quite naturally from that, one of the things that we've bonded about on Twitter is our mutual love for the Ten Commandments movie, which is awesome. And as far as I'm concerned, the greatest cinematic achievement in American history. However, one thing that I often get asked and that I'd now like to ask you is, you know, the Ten Commandments is kind of like an easy movie. If someone's like, oh, you're a religious person. What's your favorite movie? The Ten Commandments is easy because it's like a movie about a religious narrative. What's your favorite movie 
if you're thinking from kind of like a tradition or religion perspective that people wouldn't think about when they're thinking faith movies, but you would recommend and be like, as a Jewish person or as a person from a traditional background, like, yeah, this one resonated with me. Oh, Ari, you're putting me on the spot because, you know, I have <laughs> young kids. So when was the last time I saw a movie? Oh, my God. I know. And like we're in the middle of COVID. <laughs> but I will tell you that. Carmen um, San Diego is like an acceptable answer. <laughs> no, but I'll tell you that I actually we, we lived in Los Angeles for a long time. So we did have proximity to to filmmakers and we had the opportunity to go to an original screening of Tree of Life, which I know is a divisive movie because some people really hate it. It's very long and very slow, but I loved it. And I think it absolutely captures this dreaminess of connection to the divine um, in the very, very simple little snippets of family life and uh, nature that we see around us. I mean, you don't have to go to a mountaintop. It's it's kind of all around you. And so I'd love to get a chance to see it again. I've only seen it that one time, but I'd highly recommend it. Tree of Life. Amazing. Okay. And last question. So you are one of the few people on Twitter who's like pretty active and well-known in two totally rando Twitter communities, Econ Twitter and Jewish Twitter. So how would you compare Econ Twitter and Jewish Twitter? So on Jewish Twitter, I feel like a, a nobody. I come in with no particular claim to expertise. And, you know, like I say on my Dafiomi page, this is my first cycle, any help, you know, highly encouraged, something like that. You know, I'm here to learn and uh, just to absorb other people's wisdom. And so uh, on Econ Twitter, it's different because I feel like I'm a professor. So that confers some status. Um, you know, I work at Princeton. So, so people will certainly look up to the institution and so, you know, I take my role, um, you know, really seriously to try to model civil behavior and engagement on econ Twitter. On Jewish Twitter, I'm just like a fly on the wall. I'm, I hear that people have all kinds of, you know, disputes and spats and that sort of thing on Jewish Twitter, but I don't feel like I get involved or that I have any particular status role there. So I just get to enjoy learning. That's awesome. Amen. Well, listen, you have made at least my experience of Jewish Twitter, and I know the experience of so, 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 so many people. I mean, I talk about it with a lot of folks. You've made the experience really awesome, and I know the same is true for Econ Twitter. So where can folks find you on Twitter? There's at Leah underscore Bustan is your main account. And what's your Dafyomi account again? I think it's at Leah underscore Dafyomi, where Dafyomi is all one word. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Ari. I really appreciate it. I was, I was so intimidated to talk with a, a true biblical scholar, so uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Wow, thank you so much for being here. Unbelievable. Thank you. We're in an unprecedented era in the history of human knowledge. There's so much we now have the ability to learn and so many ways to creatively reinterpret the things we've already learned. Now, of course, we can use that progress for selfish or immoral reasons. It's not hard to spot if you look around the modern world. But grounded in the traditions of our past, in the lessons of Genesis and the Garden of Eden about the limitless value of human life and the grandeur of our spiritual potential, if we ground ourselves in those traditions, I think we have more potential in this generation than in any other to build towards that big, beautiful, sacred city that will reflect our partnering with God in creating the world, not just as it is, but as it ought to be. All right, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, just 
give us a rating or a review on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcast because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.